Tappers, what's up? It is the Thursday edition of the Daily Tap. Hope you're doing well. We're almost at the weekend. We're almost there. We have a good show today. We're going to talk about Corbin Burns, Brandon Woodruff, Freddie Peralta. Which one of them deserves the Cy Young Award? We'll go over that. We will understand that the votes could be split. And how do you make a decision on any of these guys right now? It is very hard to choose. And we shall see where the voters go. I am fascinated by this. Um, definitely worth talking about after what Burns did yesterday. And we'll get into all of it with all three of these pitchers. We will also talk about... Matt LaFleur saying that preseason, eh, not really sure if I like preseason or not. Uh, really interesting comments from Matt LaFleur speaking about last year versus this year and where where we go from there. So I will uh, we'll talk about that for a little bit. Um, understand if that maybe will affect the Packers season in any way. I don't think so. Um, and then I'll also talk about sort of what to watch for in the Packer-Texans game. Lastly, we will discuss Jason Kidd and how much of an asshole Jason Kidd is and how the hell did this guy get another coaching job. So that will be the show today, but let's start with the Milwaukee Brewers. So we saw what Corbin Birds did last night. What Corbin Birds did last night was legendary. It was one of the best performances I think you'll ever watch a pitcher perform. Um, when Bally Sports, which does this from time to time, will do like Brewers Classics. Um, they will roll back this Corbin Burns tape. And they should, right? Because Corbin Burns was fantastic. He played great. Um, 15 strikeouts. He set a ML, or he set, he tied an MLB record for 10 consecutive strikeouts um, it, with Tom Seaver and Aaron Nola. Nine of those were swinging strikes. Then the last guy uh, he got looking, Corbin Burns had 30 whiffs in the game, which means swinging strikes. That's the most in his career. Uh, he was up to 24 through six. Um, he obviously slowed down a little bit um, in that seven and eighth inning. Uh, Craig Council did not let him finish off the complete game shutout, partly due to a long ninth inning because the Brewers added more runs with this pathetic Cubs pitching staff as Omar Nervais went deep uh, to put the Brewers up 10 to nothing in that game. So it, it has been masterful to watch Burns, as I mentioned at the start. It was a masterful performance. It was a Cy Young-worthy performance. Brewers' Twitter account called it a Cy Young performance as the Brewers have been campaigning on social media for their guys. And they've been talking about how Willie Adamas deserves to have MVP consideration, which I do agree. I think we talked about on this podcast a few weeks ago and obviously mentioned Burns now for the Cy Young. And the Cy Young is a really interesting conversation because the Brewers have three nominees. Um, they have three guys that could potentially get not or should be considered for that Cy Young. Now, the way baseball does it is they do three finalists. It would be fucking awesome. Won't happen. But it would be fucking awesome to see all three Brewers be the three finalists. I doubt that will happen. Um, one will be not. One will be a finalist. I think two should be, honestly. But we'll see how baseball does it. Baseball is weird like that where sometimes the guys in Milwaukee don't always get the attention as guys on the coast. Um, we kind of saw this last year, even though in a shortened season. But Corbin Burns was not getting the same love as like a Jacob DeGrom. 
DeGrom. And I know Jacob DeGrom did some awesome stuff last year. Don't get me wrong. But Burns deserved to be mentioned with him. And he really wasn't. He really wasn't in the same stratosphere as DeGrom. And he deserved to be in that same realm. And right now the Brewers have three finalists. It, no question about it. There are other guys that contend. And we'll break down all their candidacies at this point um, in a second here. But to talk about the other guys who could be considered, you have Walker Buehler, who's been tremendous for the Los Angeles Dodgers. You have Kevin Gaussman, who's also been very good. Zach Wheeler of the Philadelphia Phillies. You could maybe throw Max Scherzer into the mix with what he did in Washington and now in L.A. And maybe Joe Musgrove, if you're really looking at an outside candidate who could like push hard down the stretch. I do think these last... 50 or so games are going to matter, at least the next 30. I think after we get close to playoffs, it might not matter as much. The Phillies and the Dodgers could have an advantage, and the Giants for that matter, that they might be playing until 162. And if the Brewers keep on the pace that they are, they will not be playing until 162. The Brewers will clinch and kind of take it easy for a couple weeks. And maybe the only thing they're playing for is home home field advantage for the rest of the rest of the playoffs and that's that's it but they might not be stretching out burns peralta and woodruff as the season finishes up may unlike the dodgers and phillies which might be battling for divisional spots might be battling for wild cards we'll see um and that might bolster some of that late season push for the voters so that could be a drawback to any of the three brewers candidates but all of them have reasons to like. Like Burns, he's third in the MLB in ERA. He has a 35% strikeout percentage, meaning guys strike out at a 35% clip when they're facing Corbin Burns. Now, that percentage was, I think, before the game yesterday. Um, this graphic was either from Marquis or Bally. Um, shout out to Tony Preston, who sent it to Pitching Ninja. And it was really interesting to see all of this broken out. Uh, in this graphic, they have it at seven, the seventh in MLB for Burns and ERA. That has went down to third after his performance yesterday. And I guarantee you that strikeout percentage has grown. Brandon Woodruff, who we'll talk about a little later, he is second in MLB in ERA at 223. Actually, Burns and him are tied. Uh, Woodruff will likely take over that spot from Burns if he has a good performance today. He has a 519 opponent's OPS, which is second in baseball. OPS combines hits, walks, uh, uh, hits, walks, home runs. Sorry about Let's start that again. For those who aren't unfamiliar with OPS, you should probably be. They bring OPS into conversations, but in case you're not, uh, is hits, home runs, um, walks. So it's really everything and encompasses everything. And Woodruff is second in the MLB in opponents OPS. Freddy Peralta, he's third in baseball in the area at 226. And the opponent batting average is one is .141, which is the lowest in the live ball era. That is lower than any other pitcher in baseball. Freddie Peralta is on a current streak right now that's ridiculous. He has 21 straight games where he has had more strikeouts than hits allowed. The only person that has more is Randy Johnson at 25. And Randy Johnson did that over two seasons. So he did it in 1999 and he did it in 2000. 
Pedro Martinez, he won Cy Young in both those years, by the way. Pedro Martinez just did it in, in 2001 after his amazing 2000 season. So he's doing stuff that is on par with Johnson and Martinez, as well as having the lowest batting average for any pitcher in all of baseball since live ball, which is crazy. That's, I mean, those are some wild stats for all three of them, but that the Peralta stats stand out to me. And I guess we can start with Peralta. Um, I know we talked a little bit about Burns, but let's, the Peralta candidacy is interesting because he's not being used as much. Um, They're trying to limit his innings a little bit as he's pitched the most innings of his career. He's still listed, hilariously enough, as a relief pitcher, according to ESPN. Um, But they're trying to limit his innings pitch. And I think the argument against Peralta would be that he has not pitched enough and that might screw him in terms of that. Now, for comparison's sake, Corbin Burns only is at 121 and Max Scherzer is also at 121, but that pales in comparison to what Zach Wheeler has at 156, Kevin Gaussman at 137, Brandon Woodruff also at 137 and will grow today, Walker Bueller at 147. So Peralta and Burns are limited by their innings pitched. And to me, I don't think they should be criticized for that. That is not a fault of their own. That's a fault of their manager. And it's not even a fault. It's their manager being fucking smart. Because what they're trying to do is prevent them from injury. That is exactly what they're trying to do. They're trying to prevent them from getting hurt. There's no reason that Burns and Peralta couldn't pitch more than what they have they have already this season. But Craig Council is trying to keep these guys healthy. He is trying to avoid these guys getting hurt and blowing out an elbow or blowing out a shoulder and then being down for the following season. I mean, even though he's only pitched in 119 innings this year, Freddie Peralta has only allowed 58 fucking hits. That's incredible. That's unbelievable. Corbin Burns, for comparison, has allowed 91. Woodruff has allowed 89. Wheeler has allowed 121. I mean, you look at that and you say, why shouldn't Freddie Peralta be the Cy Young? And he has these kind of mind-numbing stats, but I, I do wonder if the innings pitch is going to kind of snub him out and kind of kick him out of the finalists that they say, well... He's good, but he just he doesn't have like the ace level, like can can take control of the game. Like he only has 12 quality starts. His war is at a four, which we'll we'll see in comparison. I mean, that's four wins above replacement. So that means that if you take Freddie Peralta, he's worth about four wins on your team. Which also too, for to get really kind of ridiculous here, the combined war between Peralta, Burns, and Woodruff is 13 point two meaning they are worth 13 wins. You could also argue they should all split the award. Like they should all just get a little piece. Like all three should be finalists and it's like it's a tie. Because they that, that that's how good the all three of these guys have been. It, it's incredible. Freddie Peralta started out of the bullpen this year to begin the year. He opened up the season. He pitched two innings against the Minnesota Twins out of the bullpen. The rest of it has been all Freddie all the time. But as for Corbin Burns, Corbin Burns has been doing some ridiculous shit in terms of 
everything. He has 21 walks on the season. To put that in comparison, Woodruff has 33, Bueller 38, Peralta 51, the highest of the of the, the bunch, which again could maybe hurt his overall candidacy. Uh, Zach Wheeler has 34. He's the only one with Woodruff that is even close. I guess Scherzer at 29, who I, again I'm not really considering his candidacy, is also there. But Burns doesn't walk anybody. All he does is strike guys out. The strikeout percentage is absolutely incredible. He's at 172 for the season, which is second in the in the NL behind Wheeler, who's at 181, and Garrett Cole in the Nash in the American League, excuse me, who's at 171. But Corbin Burns is dealing every time out. His strikeouts per nine innings, obviously because of the innings pitch, leads baseball at 12.8. It's all of baseball. It's not just the NL. It's all of baseball at 12.8. The only guy in the NL that comes close to him is his teammate Freddy Peralta at 12.2. And then Scherzer at 12.1. None of the guys like your Gosman's Woodruff, Wheeler... They're down at t- at the ten point level, so they're they're down a little bit in terms of their K's per nine innings. And actually, Walker Bueller's K's per nine innings is at nine point three. He is twenty fourth, so that might be the criticism to Walker Bueller, right? Like he's not as dominant. Like it, he is getting outs, right? But he's kind of pitching more to contact than he is striking guys out. And I I do think like strikeouts matter, right? Like I think strikeouts should matter when you're considering a candidate. And then we go to Brandon Woodruff. Now, Brandon Woodruff's pitching today, so this could blow up in our face, right? Brandon Woodruff could really struggle. He couldn't maybe not pitch the way we expect him to. And you're like, well, why would Brandon Woodruff be considered? Well, pitchers are going to have bad starts, right? Like, I can probably find a bad start from Walker Buehler. I can find a bad start from Zach Wheeler. I for sure can find a bad start from Max Scherzer, only because I remember having the Nationals money line, which was pretty heavy against the Padres. He had like a 7 nothing lead, and then they lost it. And I'm like, all right, fuck you, dude. Like that was one of the worst baseball gambling beats in some time. And baseball gambling beats are just the worst. Like to me, they might be worse than football beats, honestly. We, we should do that. that actually, we'll pocket that segment. Worst beats out of the three sports because all three have their own way of, of killing you and just ripping you apart. But baseball has its own, own special way. But back to Brandon Woodruff. So Brandon Woodruff, to me, the reason why Brandon Woodruff might be the winner of this all is he right now carries a five in terms of the wins above replacements. Peralta and Burns are at four, okay? And the only people that have a higher war than Brandon Woodruff are Wade Miley, funny enough, at 5.3, and Zach Wheeler at 6.1. The Zach Wheeler argument would be that he has the highest war of all of all the pitchers and that if the if the Phillies did not have Zach Wheeler they would not be in the playoffs now that Phillies have to get there first right they're in a dogfight with the Mets and with the Braves but the Phillies have to get there first so the argument for Zach Wheeler could be that the Phillies would not be in the playoffs without Zach Wheeler which is a very fair argument to make and war has been used to decide a Cy Young who can forget 
Felix Hernandez against CC Sabathia when Felix Hernandez was a 500 pitcher but had an incredible war. And the only reason that Seattle was okay that year was because of Felix Hernandez. They didn't even make the playoffs. And people went crazy and were like, how can't you give an 18-game winner the Cy Young? Because I think that's how many wins Sabathia had. But his war paled in comparison to Hernandez, who was playing on a much shittier team. And and Sabathia, I think that year the Yankees go on to win the World Series, if I'm not mistaken. War has been used to be a deciding the last factor of the sum of all parts. And I, I think Wheeler has a great case. And like I said in the open... He's going to get the advantage of pitching down the stretch. But yes, Woodruff has the war. He has the innings pitch that I think is is likable. He only has allowed 89 hits this year, which obviously to your Burns and Peralta is a little less. But if you put it put it in the guise of he's pitched more innings, he has he has it one there. He also has it in terms of of earned runs. He's only allowed 34 to Bueller's 35 to Gosman's 35. So they're, they're kind of even there, but Wheeler has allowed 42 runs. So that's again, a little bit harder to support the cause of Zach Wheeler. He's allowed 11 home runs. Now that is less than Gosman, Bueller. Now it's all the same. They're all kind of lumped in, right? They've all allowed a, a good amount of home runs. Burns is only allowed five this year, which is actually probably a case for Burns. Wheeler is actually less at 10. But so there are things where you look at it and you're like, all right, is, is there a case for Brandon Woodruff? And it's like, yeah, the war is there. Also, Brandon Woodruff leads the major leagues, not just the NL, in whip. So that is walks, hits, innings pitched. Woodruff is the top guy tied with Max Scherzer with 0.89. Peralta is there at 0.91. Burns is there at 0.93. Wheeler also coming in at 0.93. So it's really hard for me to pick a winner, right? I think all of them deserve it. I think Peralta, because of the lack of innings pitched, is probably where I say, all right, we'll kick Peralta out. And now it's just down to Burns and Woodruff. Now the case is like, well, Burns has the same amount of innings pitched as Peralta. So like, why wouldn't you kick Burns out? It's a good question, right? It's two innings. That's all the difference. And I guess that I have to kick Burns out too. Even though I think Burns' stats are a little bit better than Peralta's. Just a little bit. The home run thing is is big, man. The fact that he's only allowed five home runs, the fact that he's barely walked anybody, that's where I think the difference of Burns and Peralta is. Even though their innings pitched are the same, that's where I can start making a case that Burns has an even better resume than Peralta. But then I think Woodruff is the answer. And so I will say Brandon Woodruff as is my answer at this point. We'll obviously see if that changes because it could it easily could there could be you know a breakthrough and maybe Woodruff falls off a little bit and Burns is the guy it, and who knows maybe they go down to the wire and then there's a uh, there has to be a choice and I'd have to look back in the when the Braves had their big three pitching staff when the A's had their big three like how did that work from a Cy Young perspective maybe that is a follow-up to this podcast to say, all right, how, how has it done historically? What has happened when you've had multiple guys have just incredible seasons? Does one rise to the top over the other? 
My answer is Brandon Woodruff, and if I know how podcasting works, I know he's going to struggle today because that's just how the podcast gods work. And if he does, just remember it's one game, and we shouldn't judge it off of just one game. I think the cream will rise to the top, and I think Woodruff is your Cy Young winner for baseball. And if it isn't somebody from the Brewers, I will just scream about East Coast or West Coast bias. Moving on to the Green Bay Packers. So the Green Bay Packers do play their first preseason game on Saturday with our interview with Jordan Kaplan, which will air tomorrow. Uh, we will get that up probably around, I would say, 10 o'clock or so um, on Thursday night. Um, we're going to talk about everything. Uh, we're going to talk about Retro Daddy. We're going to talk about um, hit the saucepan. We're going to talk about his international basketball experience. We'll just kind of deep dive. I, I think Jordan, he's a loyal listener. Um, I, I will preface that, but I'll also add that he has a fascinating story to tell. And I think, I think you guys will really enjoy it. Um, and I think you'll really like uh, Jordan on the on the show today. So I'm looking forward to it. I'm very excited to have him be a part of a you know a sit down and him and I just kind of chat about all the things mentioned. So that being said, we will do an intro in that, but we won't talk a lot about the the Green Bay Packers, the Milwaukee Brewers, the Bucks, unless something breaks, something goes crazy, and we need to talk about it. So we, we will talk about the Packers in the preseason, and most notably the Matt LaFleur commentary, where Matt LaFleur basically said, I, didn't, I don't know. I kind of liked last season. He talked about how with the pandemic, they didn't have preseason, so he was able to kind of stay in a flow. And he mentioned how preseason disrupts the flow of the of the regular season. Now, Matt LaFleur is a cerebr- cerebral guy. Like, Matt LaFleur is so dialed in, he's kind of crazy. Like, from everything you read from Sean McVay and other people who know Matt LaFleur, he just eats, sleeps, and breathes football and thinks about football all the time. So Matt LaFleur can't really just not ignore a preseason game. He has to throw himself into it. He has to throw himself into a game plan. When you're dealing with a new quarterback like Jordan Love, who's still a new quarterback, he has not taken a live snap against competition in his career. This will be his first one against the Houston Texans. He has to make sure that Jordan Love has a game plan. He has to give Jordan Love the ability to succeed. And if he doesn't, then that's he's not doing his job. So I think what Matt LaFleur is saying is like, while preseason is important, he's not ignoring that. He thinks it disrupts what they're trying to do in the regular season, which I wholeheartedly understand. This takes Matt LaFleur away from what they're trying to do in the regular season. This preparation, even though if it's vanilla, even if it is as cream cheese as it can be, he still has to spend time. And these coaches do not have time. <laughs> like they are running from place to place. Like I complain about time all the time. Like I I wish that I didn't have to sleep. Like I wish my body could like I could go for 20 hours in a day and just maybe sleep four. And I know some people do that. And those people are animals. And I don't know how they do it. I I think that is a crazy approach to life. And at some point, you do burn yourself out. Like, there's no way you don't. Like, people are lying. Like, I know Gary Vee says that bullshit, right? He's lying. 
At some point, Gary Vee needs rest. We all fucking need rest. That's that's part of keeping your mentals. Shout out to Marshawn. But the fact is, is like Matt LaFleur doesn't have time to worry. He, he doesn't want to worry about preseason. He wants to worry about what the Packers are doing in the month of September. That's what matters to Green Bay. That is the, the thing that Green Bay is looking for. Not to focus on the Texans. So I kind of understand where Matt LaFleur is coming from. Now, what I will be curious with this first game, which I will not put a lot of stock into, and that is something that I will probably have to do a topic on on Monday. Like, all right, let's slow down with the preseason overreactions because those will be back. Everybody will overreact to preseason. We had a year off of preseason. There will be a lot of overreactions. The overreactions will be off the charts, not only for the Packers, but for really every team. Every team will have their own individual overreactions. Trevor Lawrence will get some overreactions. Uh, Zach Wilson will have overreactions. Justin Fields. like Those will be premier overreactions. Uh, I tried there. Um, but Tua, you gotta, I'm in preseason too, right? I will get Tua's name right as the year goes on. But the fact of the matter is, is like these guys are all going to get over the top declarations by the national media and the spotlight is shining on Jordan Love and it's unfair to him and I've talked about this on social with the mini keg stuff on Instagram and TikTok you can follow me there tapping the keg sports on both um and it sucks like that sucks for Jordan Love like I feel bad for Jordan Love I've, I've said that before too but Hopefully, Matt LaFleur is going to get him ready. And I'm so I'm very curious to watch Jordan Love, of course. I'm really curious to watch Amari Rodgers and seeing what they're going to do with Amari Rodgers. My guess is they will not show their hand much. Amari will run routes. He will do his thing. But he, we're not going to see kind of the special shit, the jet sweeps, the reverses, anything else. Amari Rodgers in the backfield even. like I don't think that's stuff we're going to see in preseason. I think it's stuff we'll see in week one against the Saints, but I don't think it's something we are going to see immediately in this game. Like I just I just don't think that's going to happen. So also on top of that, um, to continue on, um, I defensively, I'm curious on Eric Stokes. Um, I don't know how much Eric Stokes is going to play. I've mentioned Shamar Jean St. Charles a couple times, or Charles. I want to call him St. Charles. It's just Shamar Jean Charles or Jean Charles, whatever. I need the pronunciation from Kevin Harlan. So I hope Kevin can provide that for me on Saturday. I will be at a bar, so I don't know if I'll have the sound on. And I don't know how much uh, the Packers will be on. Um, I don't be interested to see if they do anything with Rashawn Gary. I doubt that Rashawn Gary will play much. Um, TJ Shelton, watching him in the middle will be fun um, against this Texans team. So yeah, there are guys to definitely keep your eye out for. It's really just, hey, the big thing with game one of preseason is, hey, how do some of the rookies look? Love it. I would throw into that mix. Besides the rookies in the preseason game one, you want to look at those undrafted guys, like guys like Ennis Gaines, guys like KB and Into. Like, those are guys you want to pay attention to and keep keep a close eye on and say, all right, are they something? Are they, you know, practice squad guys, uh, the edge rusher from Utah State, I, I'm going to butcher his name, but Talib, 
Tlipa, oh God, it starts with a G. I'm not going to try. Uh, we're just going to move on. You guys know who I'm talking about. He was on practice squad last year. You know, those guys are what, you know, is Reggie Beltington, the uh, CFL guy, is he going to have a moment? Like w- Devin Funches too. Like he's not in that undrafted category, but uh, old vet trying to make this team. Is Devin Funches going to be a part of it? Like that, those are things to watch. Patrick Taylor, Kylan Hill on the running back side. Like, those are guys to just keep your ear eyes on and see can they you know make a claim can they make a push for this roster and one game won't decide at all we'll obviously want to see you know game 2 game 3 and see if they can you know rise to the top and maybe make a roster for the green bay packers but we will see it should be a fun to just see lambo full again um, that will be a lot of fun, and they should have great weather for the game. It's be- it'll be a beautiful night um, in Green Bay, and just excited to watch our Packers yet again. All right, let's move on to the Milwaukee Bucks adjacent. Not an- and-, and adjacent is funny because we're talking about Jason Kidd. Jason Kidd, the book on Giannis from Miriam Farber came out yesterday. I really should have put it on my birthday list. I fucked up there. Didn't know it was coming out right before my birthday. Maybe somebody would see it and get me for my birthday. I don't know. Um, no one's at the house right now, so it isn't even like I'm dropping any hints. But as for the book, it says in there about Jason Kidd, and it details a game after uh, Charlotte where they lost uh, right before Christmas. And basically, Jason Kidd worked their players to the bone on Christmas Eve. It was like a four-hour practice. They had to do pool work. They had to do weight work. It was an absolutely grueling practice in the middle of the fucking season. Even when Giannis was getting better and Jason Kidd blamed him for missing a defensive assignment, they went back and looked on the tape. Giannis was right, and Kidd still sat him in the second half in a blowout against Philly with the Bucks were winning to prove a point. Jason Kidd is the biggest asshole in the NBA. He absolutely is clueless on people people skills. I cannot believe this guy is getting a job with the Dallas Mavericks who've had more turmoil than maybe any NBA team in the last five years with the sexual assault stuff, with all the stuff that was going on with Rick Carlisle and Haralabob and their front office. I cannot believe Jason Kidd is getting another coaching job. I already knew that Jason Kidd was an asshole. I already knew that Jason Kidd wrecked Jabari Parker. I quote tweeted the thread where they had this, and I I don't have the name of the Twitter user. I apologize. I do have a blog up about it as well on tappingthekegsports.com, so you can go read it there. And I, like, we always knew he was a dick, but this just drives home the point that he was an absolute asshole, was one of the worst coaches to deal with, and I cannot believe that he's going to be coaching again in the NBA. It's unbelievable to me. I, I, I'm befuddled, honestly. Like I just, it's he doesn't deserve it. And he, and and I really blame the media for this. Like Mark Stein has been in Jason Kidd's back pocket. I really like Mark Stein. I think Mark Stein does a great job. He has a Substack now. He broke away from the New York Times. Like Mark Mark Stein does an incredible job reporting. He is as plugged in as anybody. But Mark Stein pumped the tires of Jason Kidd multiple times throughout the last couple of years. And looking at this, I would love to show Mark this, right? 
And I think Mark would say, well, Jason's a friend and, you know, I, I really respect Jason and I obviously follow up with him on this. I'll be curious to hear what he says. I'll be curious to hear his perspective. And, and that'll probably be the end of it. But no Dallas-based reporter is doing their job without following up with Jason Kidd on this, without reaching out to Jason Kidd before the season even starts and says, hey, Jason, would love your comments on the players talking about this practice in December. Now, I'm sure Jason has PR, whether it's his own or the Dallas Mavericks, who are telling him, like, hey, look, here's what we say. You say you've learned from this. You say, like, I was so wrong to do this. Like, I really regretted that. I, you know, all this stuff. And it's it's all bullshit. Because I guarantee you Jason Kidd has not reached out to Larry Sanders because he ruined Larry Sanders' career. That's another skin for Jason Kidd. Jason Kidd had gunned down two careers. He gunned down Jabari Parker's career. He ruined Jabari Parker in terms of his mentals. And he also ruined Larry Sanders. That blood is on his hands. And by Mark Stein and others promoting Jason Kidd, I think Ramona Shelburne can also put blood on her hands. That same blood is on their fucking hands. Because all they're doing is promoting this environment that's going to ruin more careers in the NBA. And that is not fair to anybody. Nobody should have their career ruined by a fucking coach. If you get injured, which Jabari did, and you could argue his injuries played a part. Yeah, injuries can ruin a career. But the mental hurdles that you have to deal with with a coach telling you you're not good enough, that a coach basically acting like why you aren't aren't like Giannis, I hate that. I've had that happen in the workforce. Why can't you be more like this person who you work with? Well, I'm not that fucking person, all right? Like, I'm not that person. I'm not going to be that person. So why don't you treat me like a fucking individual and treat me like who I am and stop fucking comparing me to that guy? Like, I hate that shit. And if I'm ever lucky enough to lead people, whether it's at this blog or it's at a, a day job, like, I never want to be that person where I'm comparing the two. Everybody has their own individual skills. Everybody is good at certain things. And maybe they're not good at other things. And those skills that they're not good at, work on them. But don't compare another person who is their peer. It, it's I know it's hard to not do that. But don't at least outwardly say it. Maybe say it to your, your other cohorts and be like, well, I really wish Jabari was more like Giannis. But Jason Kidd is a career runner. And he won't ruin Luka Doncic's career. He won't ruin Chris Stapps Porzingis' career. By the way, Chris Stapps, I get the fuck out. Like, I mean, Chris Stapps and Jason Kidd, you look at this shit, there is no way Chris Stapps and Jason Kidd are going to work. All right? Like, they should be looking to trade him immediately. But he could ruin a young guy's career. And, I, and this guy is mentally tough and he comes from an NBA background. But, like, what if he ruins Jalen Brunson's career? Right? Like, what if he ruins, I'm thinking a young, another young Dallas player. But that's the first one that comes to mind. Like Maxi Kleber. What if he ruins Maxi Kleber's career? What's to say he won't do this again? And the blood is on the hands of the media who fucking promoted Jason Kidd to get another job. And we didn't even touch the domestic violence stuff. That's gruesome in looking back. Yet somehow Jason Kidd gets a pass. And I, I don't understand it. It's going to be a disaster in Dallas. Luca's going to want out in three years. You can book that. Mark this podcast on August 12th, 2021. 
Luka Doncic will request a trade in less than three years. Hope you're happy with Jason Kidd, Dallas. All right, that does it for the show. Got a little fired up there at the end. Uh, went longer than I expected, as I always tend to do now. Um, like I said, Jordan, me, sit down tonight. Tonight, We'll put it up tonight, and it'll be ready for you tomorrow. That will mostly be the show, unless something crazy happens where I need to talk about it in the open. We will do that. I will have like an open, um, just sort of setting it up, talking about who Jordan is, and then we'll just get right into it. So I'm very excited to have Jordan on the show, and it will be a good one. All right, Tappers, take care of yourself. Have a great Thursday. We'll be back tomorrow. All right, see you. Bye.